Please remain standing and pray with me. Holy Spirit of God, come upon your gathered body now. Fill us anew with your presence. May the truth of the scriptures find a safe lodging in our hearts because you have prepared a place for it. Lord, we pray now that you would grant me, the preacher of your word, uh, the ability to speak clearly, uh, to offer gospel truth. Lord, I pray that you would hide any error behind your cross and let only Jesus Christ be glorified. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, uh, I feel really excited that we actually did what we said we were going to do. We said we we're going to have a series of sermons on First Timothy, and doggone it if we didn't actually do it. We've, we've gone all the way through. This is the last one in a series from First Timothy, which is called Keeping Christianity Weird. And throughout this series, we have maintained that we need to embrace the fact that Christianity is always going to seem weird in light of the conventional wisdom of the age. If Christianity is being faithful to its Lord, it will always seem a little out of step with the, con- with the conventional wisdom of the age. And that's not a bad thing. One of my favorite bloggers, Rod Dreyer, uh, cites theologian Bo Bonner, and I, I've ac- I actually used this at the beginning of this series, but I wanted you to hear that again. He cites Bo Bonner, a theologian who is a proponent for embracing Christian weirdness. Bonner maintains that we need our Christianity to quit trying to conform to the world and instead to be a lot stranger. His point is that if young people are given the choice between unbelief and a faith that puts a light God gloss on the same consumerism and materialism that everybody else lives with, then who can blame young people for rejecting it? Because that is not historic Christianity. The real thing is wild and weird. It is not a set of ideas, but a way of life. There will always be some people, young, middle-aged, and old, haunted by the sense that there is something else there, a longing that cannot be anesthetized away. And if the church stands true to itself and doesn't apologize for itself, then they will come. And so that's what our project is as believers in Jesus Christ, is not to try to fit in with the mold of the world, the pattern of the world, with the current fads and flavors of our culture, but to be authentic and true to the calling of the gospel in a way that we can still communicate gospel truth to a world around us that needs to hear Jesus Christ's message so desperately. And other than the Christian view of human sexuality, there probably is nothing weirder to our culture than the way Christians understand money and wealth. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at this First Timothy passage as it relates to how as we as believers are to view and how we are to use money. And I want to bring all of that together at the end and show you how it is rooted in the very heartbeat of the gospel And then I want to tell you a story, because I like to tell stories, and I got a great story to tell you. I wish wish it was mine. I'm going to be using, yes, let the records show that I will be quoting Andy Stanley this morning. So it happened at Christ Church. 
The very first thing, as, as we dive into this text, the very first thing that we see, the very first emphasis about money and wealth in this passage is an emphasis on contentment. Listen to what Paul says. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. So to pursue contentment over consumption in this culture is, I guarantee you, weird. To, con- to pursue contentment over consumption is weird. Biblical contentment is almost downright anti-American. Our entire consumer economy is based on the project of creating a sense of discontentment. What This is uh, Deborah Dean Murphy, uh, someone I respect a lot and uh, have uh, often brought her in, in the form of a quote into this pulpit. But here's what she writes in one of her recent books. What counts as genuine happiness? If, as corporations like Coca-Cola and Disney would have us believe, happiness can be had in the products and experiences we consume. If this, if this is true... Why are we, the savviest shoppers in the history of modern advertising, notoriously unhappy? That's actually based on a Harris poll. It isn't that consumerism makes us happy by satisfying our desires for material goods or attractively packaged experiences. Rather, our consumer culture trains us to be perpetually dissatisfied. And I want you to know, I am dissatisfied with my iPhone 6 (laughs) because there's something else coming out that's better. I don't know if it's a lot better, but it'll have an S or a 7, so it'll be better. She goes on to say, American consumer culture teaches me that the pleasure of consumption is itself in the very process of... Uh, is, it, is itself in the very process of acquiring my new good or my good deal. Advertisers want me, want all of us, listen to what she says, to be addicted not to things, but to the endless pursuit of things. And most of us seem all too happy to oblige. Now, you know, I, uh, this quote actually got me thinking, and I, I need to address this pastorally for a moment. What if somebody is in the business of advertising? That kind of, that's depressing. Can I even do that now if I'm a Christian? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. If your motivation is to inform and to serve. If it is not to engender covetousness, but to inform and to serve, go for it. Well, I can't do that and be in advertising. Well, you might be in the wrong business. But I think you can. And I think people do faithful work in that. Now, the path to contentment, there's a couple of things that will give us a key to contentment. But the path, one of the, the, the key means of attaining this contentment in the passage that we read comes through having a proper perspective, the, having a right perspective. And the right perspective on possessions is this. They are not permanent. They are not permanent. So why do we sacrifice things that really are permanent? Why do we sacrifice the eternal things for transitory things? And that's a question we need to ask ourselves. Why in the pursuit of gain are we willing to, willing to sacrifice our families? I want to tell you something. Even though I, it's not like, I just want to inform you, if you didn't know this, um, full-time ordained ministry is not the most lucrative career you could choose. Um, I, I, 
They didn't tell me that at the beginning. Gosh darn it. No, uh, no but seriously, we will, we will pour ourselves out even in ministry. And I look back in regret to the fact that uh, I sacrificed time with my small children for temporary gains in some activity in ministry. And I can never get those years back. I can never get those experiences back. But when we pursue wealth as an end in itself, we almost always end up sacrificing eternally significant things for transient things. Our relationship with God, our relationship with our families and with our brothers and sisters, those things are eternal. It says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we didn't read that this morning, but it's very, I, I, if you... Uh, if you're feeling a little too cheerful, you know, you need to be calmed down a little bit, you know, get a, get, get a more sober and realistic worldview, just go read some Ecclesiastes. We'll do the suicide counseling after that. Um, but this, as, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is grievous, a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? And we actually hear that reiterated in 1 Timothy 6, 7. Paul says, for we brought nothing into the world. And we can take nothing out of the world. Ultimately, everything that you and I have ever owned, the things that we fought over, the things that consumed us with worthy, worry, everything is going to either end up burned up or in a landfill. Everything. Contentment means unhitching from the marketing monster and realizing that genuine satisfaction and peace come only from being in a right relationship with God, not in a right relationship with our possessions, or at least not in a relationship that is disordered, I should say, with our possessions. Paul says, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. And even when he was languishing in prison, St. Paul wrote to his friends in the church at Philippi, he's in prison. He's in a Roman prison. And this is what Paul says, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content. He's in prison. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And here's how we, here's, here it is, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Contentment comes from being in a right relationship with God, and through him we can do everything because he gives us the strength. And so do you know what, really, what real contentment is? Let me tell you what it is. It's enjoying what God has already given you. Contentment is enjoying what God has already given you. Enjoy it. It says in the Scripture we just read, he's given us everything for our enjoyment. Enjoy what God has given you. Money has never provided anyone with contentment. A famous 19th century millionaire was asked by someone how much money is enough, and he replied, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. It never provides contentment. 
And our Christian weirdness in regards to material things get, cult, get even weirder in, in light of the way our culture looks at reality. In our culture, the desire to become wealthy is seen as a positive good. It is an unquestioned, uncritically accepted good if you desire to become a wealthy person. Notice Paul's not... By the way, I'm going to jump ahead of myself here and just say, when Paul says, command those who are rich among you to do X, Y, and Z, what does that mean? It means that there were those who were rich among the people in, in Timothy's church in Ephesus. So there's not, that's not the issue. The issue is what is driving you? What is your desire? And in our culture, the desire to be rich is seen as a positive good. Most of Western society thinks that the kind of self-interest, that, that, that self-interest drives our economy and our way of life, and so that kind of desire is obviously good. But the Bible says something else. It clearly teaches that the desire to become wealthy as an end in itself are you listening? The desire to become wealthy as an end in itself places us in spiritual jeopardy and can lead to destruction in this world and in the next. And we could all tell stories from the news about people whose overriding concern was making the almighty dollar and they were willing to sacrifice their integrity to do it and it destroyed them and destroyed their lives. Paul says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Christian, do you believe that he's telling you the truth? For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. They've left the Christian faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Well, if that's the case, then my goodness gracious, what is the purpose of wealth? Why should we even, I mean, what is it for? Well, one thing we know it's not for, and Paul's very clear about, it's not for security. He says in verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Now, just stop right there. I'm going to tell you something. And you don't know it when it's happening to you, all right? But I've got to tell you something. When you start to get some money, it messes with your head. It will mess with your head, and you don't even know what's happening. You begin to expect the world to behave a certain way, but you didn't plan for it to be that way. You didn't think you were going to be that person. And so Paul has to say this to Timothy, command those who are rich not to be haughty. So I don't know if there's any rich people in here. None of us think we are. I know that. But if we are, don't be haughty. <laughs> be humble. And if you do get haughty, don't worry. One of us will tell you about it. <laughs> in a loving Christian sort of way. <laughs> Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes, listen, on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. So evidently, yes, there were rich folks in Timothy's church. And what he ha they have to be told is this, wealth is uncertain, is uncertain, do not trust it. Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5, just great wisdom. Wow, in the book of Proverbs, who would figure? But... Uh, <laughs> Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. And some of us in this room right now can tell you stories about that. You think you've, you've just about, you don't know, youngins, y'all don't know what a ring on a merry-go-round is, but there used to be a ring that you had to catch when you were going around on a merry-go-round. You don't know what I'm talking about, never mind. But you're just about to grab that brass ring 
and your eyes light on it, and it is gone. Suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Wealth, brothers and sisters, listen, is always, not sometimes, wealth is always lost. It's lost in this life or when we die. It's always lost. It's never secure. The old saying goes, and you've heard me say it before, you will never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. You never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. The number one thing, and I told you there were other things that help us with our perspective, the number one thing that helps us keep our perspective right in regards to wealth is to remember this. Dear brother, dear sister in Christ, you are going to die. You're going to die, and they're going to put you in a hole in the ground, and they're going to put dirt on your head, and they're going to go back to the church hall, and they're going to eat potato salad. (laughs) I didn't make that up. And that's what we heard in Luke chapter 12 from the words of Jesus this morning. And I I will say to my, this is the rich fool, I will say to my soul, soul, (laughs) you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, and I'm sorry, I hear Mr. T every time I hear this word. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You are going to die. And everything you have ever touched and held in your hands and thought was precious and the things that you toiled for, you will leave behind. J.D. Rockefeller was one of the richest men who ever lived, certainly by adjusted dollars. And after he died, somebody asked his accountant, how much money did John D. leave? And the reply was classic. He left all of it. All of it. Brothers and sisters, God blesses us with wealth not to raise our standard of living, but to raise our standard of giving. Paul tells the rich, those with means, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And here's what is really weird. This is what Christians think that God gives us wealth for. The purpose of wealth is to give it to others and bless others and to honor God. It is to give it to bless others, and to honor God. That's it. Full stop. And brothers and sisters, God's not just going to judge us on the basis of what we gave, but also on the basis of what we did with what we kept for ourselves. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Thus, Paul says, storing up treasures, treasure for themselves. What can we do with this wealth? By doing what he said, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And by doing that, we are laying up treasure for ourselves. If there is something beyond this life, then to do that with our wealth is the right kind of investment. It is eternally significant. If you don't invest that way, you are not a good investor. 
I wish Cornell was here in this service this morning. He's, a, he's an investment advisor. So I could say, isn't that right, Cornell? <laughs> and he would say, yes, that's right. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead, thus storing up for yourself treasure in heaven as a good foundation for the future so that they, Paul goes on to say, so that they may take hold of, of the, and I like the way it says it in the King James Version, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life, so that they can take hold of life that is truly life, so that life is rich and abundant and meaningful here and in the kingdom to come. I love what Hudson Taylor, the great missionary, said. He said, well, he, he tells us, and, and we see this throughout Scripture, you know, generosity, that's where the life that is truly life is. That's, giving is where joy is. And so Hudson Taylor says, the less I spent on myself and the more I gave to others, the fuller of happiness and blessing did my soul become. The, more, the fuller of happiness and blessing did my soul become. And we all know that's true. We know it's true, but why is it so hard to do it? And it is. But for, I got to tell you something, though. Uh, if, if you're new to Christ Church, you got to know this, this group of people, in fact, it was one of the themes of one of, our, 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 of the year for us, it is, has a history of being radically generous. I mean, scary, crazy generous. Selling their goods and giving to the poor kind of generous. And, I, and when we, and I, this keeps on happening, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, you're sitting in a church building this morning, cause, and I'm not going to tell you who it was. You would never know who it was. I had a, a fellow one day uh, call me that was towards the end of a year, a few years ago. And, uh, and, and again, I'll never divulge this. I, won't, I don't want to steal his blessing. But he, he called me, it was in December one year. He said, I'd like to give a, he, he's an old dude. He said, I want to give a gift to the church. And I'm thinking, oh, that's going to be nice. We get like $500 at the end of the year for the church. Woohoo! And uh, this was before we were in this building. And I said, well, that's, that's wonderful. What, uh, he said, yeah, I'd like to give $100,000. I didn't know he had 100000 I mean, Really? Is this a senior moment? <laughs> and because of that, and it blessed him, and he loves the fact that you'll never know who he was. And because of that, you're in this building right now. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I, it's just, and the joy that comes through people's hearts. Uh, I love um, Randy Alcorn, who is a, uh, he's just got a great story. You need to read some of his stuff sometime been very influential in my view of, of giving and that kind of stuff. By the way, this isn't a tithing sermon. I don't know if you were tensing up or something like that. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know. It's like, oh, well, okay, when's the ask going to come? When is he going to hand out the pledge cards? <laughs> no, no. Hey, look, don't stop tithing, please. <laughs> but Randy Alcorn said this. He, says, he tells the story of Mark, a Kentucky uh, uh, attorney who gives away half of his income each year. Mark said, my pursuit of money drove me away from God, but since I've been giving it to him, everything changed. In fact, giving has brought me closer to God than anything else. And Randy goes on to say, giving jump starts our relationship with God. It opens our fists so we can receive what God has for us. Now, up to this point, everything that I've just told you could be just moralism. Just a sense of moral alts that obligate us to a, a course of action. 
We ought not to love money. We ought to be generous. But the reality is that all of what we think about wealth and generosity and giving and possessions, all of that flows not from obligation, but from being united to Jesus Christ, and it is, in, and it is rooted in grace. And here is the key verse that brings that to a point, and it's in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. <clears throat> For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ... That though he was rich, yet for, he, for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. We view riches the way we do because the universe itself was brought into being, was redeemed, and is sustained by a God who is infinitely generous and who in his very being has revealed himself to be self-giving love self-giving love. He was richest and possessed all of heaven and earth, and yet he emptied himself and gave it all away to be born in a stable, to be laid in a feed trough for his bed, to go through life with no place to lay his head, to die stripped naked and abandoned on a cross, and even in death he had to borrow a tomb. And because of that ultimate expression of a willingness to give ultimate riches on our behalf, he rose bodily on the third day. And by his victory, by the victory of Christ's self-giving love, infinite self-giving love expressed in giving of his own life, by the victory of that self-giving love and the resurrection, God generously creates a new creation. A new creation begins because of that. And so followers of Jesus who are united to him are generous because his life of self-giving flows through us. And that's the story I want to tell you. Again, it's not my story. I wish I knew this guy. It's a story about Milton Scott. And Andy Stanley, who knew him, tells a story about him. He says, by the time he died at the age of 106... Milton Scott had experienced more of life than 10 average men. Born in 1895, he lived in three different centuries. He operated a successful textile mill from the age of 25 to the age of 102. You thought you were going to have to retire late. I'm going to have to work till noon on the day of my funeral. He operated a, a mill for that long. When he sold, and then he sold it to a company of, of a, a British conglomerate. He said, even when he was no longer involved in the day-to-day operations of the business, he prayed regularly for his company. Perhaps the most remarkable thing about Mr. Milton was how uncompromising he was about his kingdom calling. He was born to give. More specifically, he felt called to put God's word in the hands of people who were eager to absorb it. And he knew no greater joy than finding a new Bible distribution opportunity to fund. He called these distributions, distributions his projects. For himself, Mr. Milton allotted a very meager lifestyle. He typically kept four suits, four pairs of shoes, and a half a dozen white shirts in his closet. He drove a basic American car, replacing it every 10 years. He lived out his days in the same house he had built for his bride in 1920. 
No modern kitchen, no jacuzzi. He didn't even have air conditioning. This is in Georgia. (laughs) Until he was in his 90s when a live-in nurse required a window unit to stay comfortable. (laughs) On a typical day, Mr. Milton would eat a bacon breakfast, praise the Lord. (laughs) 106. Well, just think how long he would have lived if he hadn't eaten all that bacon. (laughs) He'd be telling us the story now. And then sit in his favorite chair reading the Bible for one or two hours. On average, he would read through the entire Bible four or five times per year, a pace he maintained for 80 years. And after Bible reading, he took the short ride to work where he tended the meal and his prayer closet. He enjoyed hamburgers, Georgia Bulldog football, telling jokes. Masterfully, he balanced simple living with a zest for life. And unlike most people with a growing income, Mr. Milton didn't elevate his lifestyle in turn, nor did he fumble for a $20 bill when the offering plate was passed. For Milton Scott, funding the work of ministry was a priority, and fund it he did in vigilant secrecy. He went about the task of dividing his sizable earnings among God's interests around the world. Along the way, he amassed a list of accomplishments many charities only dream about. He helped to smuggle thousands of Bibles into Russia before the Iron Curtain fell. He single-handedly funded a ministry that equipped lay preachers across South America. By himself, he was one of the largest sources of aid to the country. By himself, he was one of the largest Sources of aid to the country of Bangladesh for two consecutive years by himself. He was personally responsible for printing and distributing more than 30 Wycliffe Bible translations in China, Egypt, India, Central America, and countless other places. Immeasurable, innumerable people got their first glimpse of Scripture because of his vision and generosity. He also took literally the call to care for widows and orphans, supporting a widow's ministry and paying the college tuition for several children of deceased parents. Mr. Milton sent his assistants to investigate the inner workings of the ministries he was considering helping. As soon as God placed a suitable project on his desk and the money in his account, he would would get to the task of giving. It was not uncommon for him, listen, it was not uncommon for him to clean out his account two or three times a year. In his later years, a nephew in charge of his estate would often have to notify him when the money had run out. And whenever his account was replenished again, he would give it all away. Mr. Milton seemed impervious to the what-ifs most of us fear. Not that they weren't familiar. He lived through the Great War. He survived the Great Depression. He raised a large family. But despite all those invitations to worry about himself, he was much too enraptured in the joy of giving to notice. He didn't amass a reserve fund. He didn't watch the stock market. He just gave and gave and gave. And because of his commitment to secrecy during his lifetime, no one knows exactly how many millions of dollars passed through his hands. Conservative estimates suggest that he gave away 70 to 80% of his income, at least. And all along, he maintained a lifestyle that would barely qualify as middle class. Brothers and sisters, Mr. Milton, this is Ben Sharp, not Andy. But I could see his face reading this. I know, and just reading the rest of this story, he lived 106 years in a sense of radiant joy, 
because he had taken hold of the life that was truly life. He had discovered that genuinely following Jesus makes you like Jesus. And that is what keeps us weird. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.